are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners. Um, If you are joining me for the very first time, welcome to this podcast channel. And uh, if you have been joining us as we've been going through the book of Romans, welcome back. Um, for those who have, this might be your first time listening or maybe this is your first time just checking in on our Romans series, I would highly encourage you to go back into the previous podcast that we have done or that I've done prior to listening to this one. <clears throat> because there are some things in this one that I'm going to just kind of talk about briefly and not expound, but it is crucial to understand concepts certain as um, like what is justification and what is the role that we have as believers within that justification uh, and piggybacking Romans 2 and 3 and how that parallels to James chapter 2. Um, concepts of righteousness, concepts of grace, of what that actually is. Um, so a lot of these things are carrying devices that I've established in at length and in depth in the previous podcast that you're going to need to know in this one. Um, and so I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. I mean, feel free to listen to this one, then go back or whatever. But um, I would encourage you to make sure that you listen to those. So we're going to get into this starting in verse, cha- in verse 12 of chapter 5. It says, therefore, and as I've said many, many, many times before, when you see therefore, you've got to go back and ask yourself, what is it therefore? Previously, we talked about the concept of this Greek word dia, which is the word through, translated in the ESV. Um, it is the word that is used that charts this, this canal that, as I dissected in part one of Romans 5, You had this body of water, and on the other side of this land mass, this other body of water that was impossible for man to get to. No matter what we did, we couldn't get to it. And it's the the concept of grace. It's salvation. It's the promises of God that are found in Jesus Christ. Nobody on their own merit can get there. You cannot earn your way into that. So what God has done is he has charted this canal in which he has bulldozed the landmass and he has made this canal that actually connects the two and allows us entrance into this grace that was on the other side that we could not get and that God freely offered through the person of Jesus Christ for us to take hold of. Um, that in and of itself right there is where the concept of grace is unmerited, in which God freely offered it. But if you go back and listen to a lot of the other ones that I've talked about at length about what grace is, particularly even in Romans chapter 5, part 1, I talk about how that is not the fullest definition of grace and that we are diminishing what grace truly is by labeling it just simply unmerited favor. 
The actual word for grace is charis, and it means a divine influence and God's favor upon us. But in order for us to grab hold of that and utilize that grace, it requires something of us. Therefore, it cannot be defined as simply just unmerited, because unmerited means that I have to do something, or or I'm sorry, I don't have to do anything or not do anything in order to change my position of that grace towards me. It is... Not unmerited favor in its fullest definition. There is a requirement for us to have grace utilized to our account. God freely offers it, but it costs us everything to get it. So when he says, therefore, this is what he's referencing. Because while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. That in my dead state, in my blind and lost state, God sent Jesus to die for me, and I brought up even the notion of the concept of self-defense, of how it is incongruent with the notion of the cross. And that if you read First Peter chapter 2, you're going to find out that Jesus was a sinless man. You're going to find that he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. He is the one that took upon himself and chose to say, I'm going to give of myself that even though you are not deserving, even though you are a sinner, even though you are dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, I'm going to give myself for you. So the concept of self-defense of somebody attacking me and me defending myself is incongruent with the cross. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen a little bit to that because I just touched on that briefly. But the concept of Romans chapter 5 part 1 was that Jesus was that canal unto grace. And it was through him that we gained access into this grace in which we stand. It was through Jesus. This is why John 14.6 makes more sense when you just don't use it as a memory verse to recite of I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes from the Father but through me. It's not just a singularity of religion of meaning Christianity is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. I'm that canal that he carved. You won't find it any other way. I am the life of God. If you want to find the life of God, you're going to have to come through me. I am the truth. You ain't going to go through Moses. You're not going to go through Solomon. Those those guys served a purpose under the old covenant, but in Christ, under this new covenant that's now been established... You ain't going to find the wisdom of God in them because Colossians chapter 2 tells us that the wisdom of God is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. All the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ, not in Moses. So Jesus is the canal that we must go through in order to get into this grace. And that's where we're picking up now when he says, therefore. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, this is referencing Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Essentially just stating this, that because of Adam, notice it wasn't Eve. Eve was the one who sinned and became a transgressor, but the eyes of both weren't opened until Adam was the one. Eve's eyes weren't even opened until Adam ate. Because God has originated things to come and flow through the man. And so when Adam ate, sin entered into the world. Death, through that sin, had leverage over mankind. That's why you look at verses like Psalm 51.5, you look at verses like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, you look at Job 15.14, just to name a few. We were all dead in our trespasses when we were born into this world because we were of the flesh, sold under sin. 
And as Jesus even puts it in John chapter 8, I believe, he talks about it to the Jews. They're looking at their lineage of saying, I'm born a Jew, therefore Jehovah's my father. And he says, no, 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 that's not the case anymore. You see, that's the physical aspect. I'm bringing all things spiritual. You see, the reality is you weren't born into this world as a Jew with Jehovah belonging to you as your father. You were born into sin. Therefore, because you were born into this world of the flesh sold under sin, your daddy is Satan. And to a Jew, that's offensive. To say that they were born as a Jew with Abraham being their father, which directly linked unto, unto Jehovah, Jesus is telling them, that ain't the case. You see, you need, to use, you need to use the spiritual lens in order to see things as they actually are to God. Jesus was flipping things from the physical unto the spiritual, which is why in the Old Testament, you don't find men wrestling with demons, even though they existed. We know Satan and his demons existed. You don't see men wrestling with demons. You see men wrestling with men. But the New Testament, you won't find Christians wrestling or fighting with men. You see them fighting against demons. The principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness over this um, present hour. As Ephesians 6 talks about. So he says, because in Adam all men die. In Adam death has reigned because sin came into this world through Adam. Therefore, everybody who is born into this world is born into sin. The problem is most people didn't realize it. And this is what we're going to get into in a little bit where it says the law was added in order to increase the trespass so that people could see their depravity and their need for Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that in a second. He says in verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, meaning the law of Moses. He says, sinning against the law of Moses is not counted where there is no law of Moses. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. He says, it doesn't even matter about the law. Trace it back to the very beginning. Before the law was even in existence, sin was there. Death was there. And the charge in Genesis chapter 4, I believe it's in verse 6, maybe verse 7, says that sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. Notice that sin has a desire. It says its desire is for you, it wants you. It is a bloodthirsty shark in those waters and it's coming after you. And it says, but you must rule over it. That was the commission, that was the charge. But the problem is, we did not have in and of ourselves the ability to rule over sin. And there's many people today that want to say, we still don't. And I'm going to tell you that that is heresy. That is against what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, I have the authority in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, I have the authority in Christ to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 says that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it says, so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. James 1, 2-4 talks about it. It says that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I am no longer under sin through Christ and His blood and His sovereignty and power sitting at the right hand of God with me seated with Him in the heavenly places as Ephesians 2 talks about. I have authority over sin in the same way Jesus had authority over sin. So if anybody ever tells you that you don't have the authority over sin to be able to allow your um, heart and mind to no longer be under control of sin, but to actually rule over sin, 
Anybody ever comes and tells you that that's not the case? They are a liar and they are deceived. Praise God that through Jesus He has given us the victory, not just because of what He has done on the cross for us, but actually being able to live it out in this life. It's actually the commission we've been given in 1 John 2, 6, when He says, If anyone says He abides in Him, He ought to walk in the same way which He walked. So in verse 14 he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gifts following many trespasses brought justification. Essentially, here's what he's stating. He says, look, through one man came condemnation, sin, and death upon everyone. And he says, and on the the reverse of that, through one man brought access unto justification and righteousness and eternal life. He says it's not the same because one produced death, the other one produces life. The one brought disgrace, the other one brings grace. The one brought an absence of hope, the other one brings hope. So while it was through one man all these things came about, that is similar. That's what Paul's trying to state. He says it's the exact same, it's the inverse, it's a mirror image. However, what they bring are not even close to being the same. And as I said before, I want you to go back into Romans chapter 2 and I want you to look at my, my podcast on that one about the concept of justification. And I'll just briefly mention it. Justification means approval. It means we have been brought into an approved state before God through the person of Jesus Christ. Not as a result of works of the law, not as a result of us being able to earn that position because we were dead, blind, lost, and walking as enemies of God. But while we were in those things, he sent Jesus to die for us so that he could be the propitiation of our sins committed previously, as Romans chapter 3 says. We talked about that at length. So we're brought into this justified state, not through works of the law that anyone would be able to boast and saying, hey, I justified myself before God. I didn't need Jesus. That's not the case. He says, I don't want anyone to be able to boast that they brought themselves in this approved state. However, once we come into this position... Once we have access to this grace, once we've been enlightened unto the truth, we have a responsibility to remain approved before God by remaining in the person of Jesus Christ primarily. This is why verses like 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved. This is why Philippians 1, um, 9 through 10 talks about approving what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is why 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, beloved, and I'm actually now um, combining 2 Corinthians 7, 1, along with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. So at the um, expense of misquoting, let me quote 2 Corinthians chapter um, 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That means that we have the responsibility 
to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We have a responsibility to remain in that approved state. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, meaning the promises of God and the very things that he said through Jesus Christ, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That means you and I have a responsibility to remain justified in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why James 2 says what it does. You see, a person is not justified by faith alone, but by works. If you want to be justified before God in an approved standing before Him on that last day, then you must supplement works of Christ unto this faith so that you would be standing before Him without spot or blemish. Now, a lot of people don't like that because that requires responsibility. And then we like to wrestle with this concept of, well, that sounds work-based. Well, that's what Scripture teaches. Whether you like it or not, whether you've been indoctrinated to think that work-based salvation is, is heresy, that's what Scripture teaches. Is there any... Work that we can do to get into this salvation through in, in Jesus Christ? No, there's nothing you can do. But in order to remain, you most certainly have works that you must supplement to that faith in order to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is what Second Peter chapter 1 talks about. So he goes on and he says this. Um, And again, that's all detailed more so with a little bit more scriptures involved in it, a little bit more in-depth teaching on it in these previous podcasts, which is why I say it's very important for you to go back and understand it. Because moving forward in chapter 6 and 7 and even 8 in verses like, this is one of my biggest pet peeves when people quote this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They don't even finish the rest of the verse and look at the footnote that's there or look at the King James and study this verse out that says... For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They just like to quote, oh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, but I can show you five different times where a believer placed himself in condemnation. Even though they were in Christ. It talks about even in Galatians chapter 2 when it says that Paul rebuked Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Peter. You can find it in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can talk about it even in James chapter 5, I believe, where it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who walk according to the Spirit. There is no law against those who walk according to the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 tells us. But if you're going to walk according to the flesh, if you're going to sow to the flesh, then Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says that you'll reap corruption. It's only by sowing to the Spirit, notice that it's your requirement, for you to reap eternal life. And that will make more sense as we even get into chapter 6. So if we don't understand the basis of justification, of the fact that I do not have just a righteous standing before God, no matter what I do or don't do, I have access unto that righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ and the person of Him, the garments that He's given me to put on in this life, but I can take those garments off, as Revelations chapter 3 talks about with the church in Sardis. I could soil those garments, if you will. It's what Revelation chapter 16 talks about, I think it's in verse 15, when Jesus Himself says, keeping your garments on that you may not go about being seen naked and exposed. He says, keeping your garments on. 
I believe it's in Luke 12, 35. He says, stay awake. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep the garments on. We have been given access unto righteousness. And one of the other heresies that's a man-taught thing that's infiltrated the church is that when God looks at me, all he sees is just the righteousness of Christ. That's all he sees. That might be true if you have the garments on and you're not soiling them and you're keeping those garments on. And I've talked about this at length too because in Galatians 5.5, 5, Paul says that we, he waits eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Well, what's that about? If he's already become the righteousness of God, then why is he hoping for it? Why is it that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7-8, through 8, he says this, that I've, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of, catch this, righteousness. Why would he have to do anything in order for the crown of righteousness to be given to him if he already has it? If he already is simply just the righteousness of God. And I know people like to use that second Peter or the second Corinthians chapter five verse where it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to pay very careful attention to what he says, because what he does not say is that we would, that we become the righteousness of God. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. He puts a condition to it. And that's even paramount as we go through, as I've talked about it even before, when it says that, well, we'll just get into it. I'm not going to backtrack on anything. He goes on, he says this. I'm, I'm going to end up talking more at length about these things instead of just addressing them. Go back and listen to the previous podcast. He says this in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He is the access unto this righteousness, the access unto the justification and the access unto the grace. He is the canal that was dug that allows us to entrance into what was formerly impossible so that God's divine influence could actually permeate through our hearts and our minds. That's grace. It is not just solely unmerited favor. Yes, there is an application to it. But I will ask you again, as I've asked in many podcasts, as Peter talks about that I intend, though you know the truth and are established in the truth, I intend always to remind you of these things, so that after my departure you may recall these things at any point, as he talks about in Second Peter chapter one. If grace is solely unmerited, then why does it require humility to get it? God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. That means that you have to do something, you have something required of you in order for grace to be utilized to your account. You did nothing for God to extend it to you through Jesus Christ. But there is a requirement upon it for it to be activated and utilized in your life. Therefore, it is not solely just unmerited. So if you are teaching that grace is just unmerited favor, and that's just your blanket definition, then you are diminishing what grace truly is and the power that God has given to us through Jesus Christ in the form of grace. So we have been given access unto righteousness. We have been given access unto justification. We have been given access unto grace through Jesus Christ. He's the canal. As I talked about in part one. Through Adam, you get death. You get living under sin. 
meaning that it's your daddy and you have condemnation. There is no hope. There's nothing waiting for you in the end because you are in Adam and in Adam all men die. But in Christ, we have access unto that life of God. What we do with it is up to us. So he goes on, therefore, there's that therefore again. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There is nobody who is righteous. No, not one. Before coming to know Jesus Christ, there is nobody who is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because through Adam, all men have been condemned. All men are in death. Now look at the inverse of this. Because this is going to throw you for a little wrench if you have a Calvinistic doctrine. He says this, So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. If I'm going to say that the word all in the previous capacity means every single person, then I'm going to have to say that all means in the same capacity every single person. And here's what it means. That Jesus... Through him, whoever would believe in his heart and confess in his mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. They will find the life of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They will enter through that canal and come into the grace in which they are able to stand. So life has now been bestowed. Justification has now been offered. Righteousness has now been extended to anyone who would be willing to come in. Not just to the predestined elect. This is why Paul tells Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And yes, I am well aware of Romans 8 and I'm well aware of Romans 9. I have studied these out at length. I have been in conversations with Calvinists. I have been in conversations with hyper-Calvinists. And there's still always several verses in which they cannot answer. And I'm looking forward to getting to go through Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9 to unveil, hopefully, to those who the Spirit dwells within and they have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not what man has said to the churches. And may the Lord give me words to be able to convey the truth of His word to you. So he goes on in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Notice notice the terminology that he's using here. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So through one man's trespass it led to the condemnation for all men. By one man's disobedience... All people were made sinners. It says on the inverse of that, one man's obedience, the many will gain access unto righteousness, meaning that all people will have the exact same privilege and possibility given to them through the person of Jesus Christ. Did you know that in the Old Testament that... There are foreshadows and things littered throughout of the gospel. I mean, I could take you through quite a few of them. We did a sermon series not too long ago, well, I say not too long ago, several years ago. Um, it feels like maybe it was not too long ago. 
and, and we show the characteristics of Christ through people in the Old Testament. I think we probably did 10 to 12, whether we went through Elijah, whether we went through Daniel or David or Moses or Noah, whoever it might be, Samson. Um, and we showed um, pictures of the gospel in every single one of them. One of the clearest pictures to me is Noah's Ark. Because here you have this guy, Lamech. Okay, Lamech was the father of Noah, and he lived 777 years. Now, if you're in symbology or numerology in Scripture, you're going to find that seven is a very important number. Three is a very important number. When you put three sevens together, that's a very, very important number. And essentially, essentially it means complete perfection. So here is this Noah who was born from Lamech, who lived 777 years. Noah's name means arrest from your works. Now, if you know anything about Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 29, you know that Jesus says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. When you understand the concept of the Sabbath, of how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, you'll understand this passage even more, that the the, the Noah, the man of righteousness, the one who, who was to give the people a rest from their works, was born from utter perfection. And he ends up through this ark of wood and the coming wrath of God, the destruction of God, he allows entrance for these people to come onto this ark of wood. And it says specifically that it was not because of their own righteousness, but it was because of his that all these people who came onto the ark because of Noah's righteousness got spared from the judgment upon all of the world. And in the same way, you and I have been, giving, have been given rest through the person of Jesus Christ for our souls so that we don't have to go out and do everything in our own strength, in our own power. But we have a power of grace descended from heaven onto mankind that when we humble ourselves before him, God says, it is my divine influence working through you to bring about, um, as Philippians, what, 2, I think it's 13 and 14 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you empty yourself and you choose to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and you say, God, I am coming to you knowing that I don't have in my own pockets what I need to fulfill your commission for me in this life. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your divine influence in my life to accomplish in me what is pleasing to you. And then God says, I'll do it. It's called the Holy Spirit that I've made to dwell in you. And when you allow the Spirit to have the throne of your life and not your flesh, that's when the impossible becomes possible. The problem with many Christians today is that we live too much in our flesh. And so we've stopped believing the impossible is possible simply because we try to manifest the life of Christ in our own strength and it doesn't work that way. This is why Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You have to choose to let the Spirit have the throne. And if you don't, then you won't live the life of Christ in the way that God tends. And you will be utter failures throughout the rest of your life. And you might have salvation in Him because you might still be an infant in Christ, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. 
but you might just still be of the flesh because you've never learned how to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that the Spirit of God may reign in your life. I was talking about this concept with the kids today as we were doing our study through Ephesians chapter 4 at the very tail end of it. And the concept that he talks about at one of the sections in there is that the Spirit needs to have um, utter dominion in your life. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh and no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind so that the Spirit will be able to have His way with you. That means you have to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you see something in Scripture, like for instance in Titus 2, 3-5 when he talks about it, where he says that um, the older women are trained the younger women how to do these certain things, one of them being a stayer at home. You want to dissect that word in the Greek, you're going to find that it means that you are supposed to be a domestic. You're supposed to be a stayer at home. And there might be something that rises up in your flesh that says, I, I don't really want to do that. I would rather go out and I would rather work and I'd rather put my kids in public school and I'd rather... Let me just say, right after that he says, you are blaspheming the word of God. Do you think that the Spirit will have the fullest effect in you if you are withholding something from Him? Of course not. He might have an effect with you in other areas of your life, but you will not be made into the perfect image of Jesus Christ, as James 1, 2-4 says, is possible. Even as Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says that no disciple is greater than his teacher but when one is fully trained he becomes like his teacher. Jesus is our teacher. And literally he says we can be fully trained to become like him. But that won't happen as long as you hold on to the things of your flesh and not submit to the word of God. Now, I have no idea how I got to that as I'm looking back over verse 19. But let me just tell you, if there's part of you that is still living according to the flesh and is not submissive to the Word of God in full, you will never be sanctified into the full image of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says, um, even in chapter 6, when he says, Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You, how do you and I get sanctified in this faith? By presenting our bodies as slaves unto righteousness. Because that's what leads to our sanctification. So as long as we hold on to the things of the flesh, as long as we're like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we might be infants in Christ, but we're still of the flesh, as long as we hold on to that flesh, we will never be sanctified. Not to the image that God wants us sanctified in. So in this he goes and he says, uh, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteousness, or made righteous. Now the law, meaning the law of Moses, Torah, came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is meaning under the old covenant. The law of Moses came in in order to increase the trespass, essentially, to, so that we could deeper see our sin nature. It came in to increase the trespass, because people weren't seeing how wicked and depraved they were, and how in need of Christ they were. 
So the law came in, not because it was supposed to be the medium for man unto God, but because it was supposed to increase the trespass so that we would see how utterly dependent upon God we really are. So that we would see that we are depraved. So that we would see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So that we would see the, the hold that sin has on us. And that the person of Jesus Christ is the only remedy. This is why when Peter gave the message, it was in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, where it says that they were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do to be saved? They had a realization of their depravity. These Jews who had always grown up under the law, they already had this understanding of like, man, I'm, I'm actually not that good. But then Peter brings in the remedy to the situation. And all of a sudden they're like, what do we need to do in order to be remedied before God? What do we need? Peter doesn't say, you need to go and do more of the law. He says, you need the person of Jesus Christ to be the propitiation of the sins committed previously. To be the fulfillment of the law in your life so that it is no longer about the law because now it is about grace that trumps the law of Moses. He says this, but where sin increased, meaning through the law. This is what he's talking about in Romans chapter 7. Whenever he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead. Notice he says you have died to the law meaning the law of Moses, so that you can belong to another. If you're still alive in the law, let me just tell you, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. Because the only way for you to belong to Jesus Christ is for a death to annul that covenant. And praise God that Ephesians 2 tells us that a death annulled the covenant that was previously made. This is what Galatians 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all about. But check out what he says. He says, in order that we may bear fruit for God, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law of Moses were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law of Moses, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covet. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, I don't know how much more clear that gets. It is no longer about the law of Moses. It is about the law of Christ. That is the law that we live by. And it is not one and the same. Because even in John 15, Jesus shows a, a, um, a distinction between the two when he says, If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remained in his love. Even the rich young ruler comes bowing the knee before the Father or before Jesus. And he says, Good Lord, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's begging him, screaming this out on his knees as he was running up to him. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? He says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, I've done these from my youth. And Jesus looks at him, I'm sure he's thinking, and yet you're still on your knees before me because you're missing something in life because that did not produce in you the fruit that God truly wanted out of you. 
He says, I've done all these from my youth and it hasn't got me any closer to God. So Jesus goes, I want you to go and sell all your possessions and give to the needy, then you can come follow me. Not that that's the secret remedy that everybody has to go sell their possessions, although he does command us that in Luke chapter 12, meaning just live a simple life. What he's actually telling him is he says, I need you to strip away everything of who you are and what you want out of life and give it to me. Because only then can you come and follow me. This is why Galatians 5.24 says, and we would do well as the church to be able to remind people of this once again, of the commission and the calling of what the gospel truly is. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. The very first step of belonging. Not to say the flesh can't creep back, back in again. Not to say that it's not tapping on that window saying, let me back in. Not to say that it can't take the throne again, as 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 talks about. But the very first step of belonging to Christ is relinquishing the claim of your life and saying, I surrender my life to you. And you can do with me as you see fit because it is my spiritual act of worship, as Romans 12, 1-2 says. If you have never come to Jesus with that as the message of what you heard, then you might not have ever come to Him. If all you did was pray to ask Jesus into your heart so that He would save you from hell, I'm going to tell you right now, there is a very high percentage that you are actually not saved. Because the requirement for salvation is submission and surrender to the person of Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. So finishing this up, he says this, where sin increased, meaning through the law, grace abounded all the more, meaning that God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ trumps the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Don't think that this is now moving into the new covenant where if you are a believer in Christ and and now you're sinning, grace just simply abounds all the more. Don't, Don't buy into that heresy. You're going to misinterpret James chapter 4 if you believe grace is just the overlooking of your sin. This severe warning he's given them of saying, if you are going to make yourself a friend of the world as a believer in Christ, somebody who's received the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, if you're going to go be a friend of the world, he says, then you're making yourself an enemy of God. And he says, but he gives more grace, not to overlook what you've done, but to empower you to overcome what you've done. There's a big difference between those two. If you don't see it, I'm sorry. I can't help you see that. If you don't see the distinction between the difference of overlooking your sin and giving you that divine influence in order to overcome the sin. And that's why he says, God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify. I'm sorry, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's telling them, you've jacked it up. You are jacking it up. But God will extend a greater grace to you than even the transgressions that you're committing under the new covenant. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about under the law of Moses. And the transgressions committed under the law of Moses, he says God gives a greater grace that trumps the law. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I would encourage you. Read this text. Go back listen to the previous podcast if you haven't. 
and change your perspective or allow the Spirit, I should say, to change your perspective if it is not congruent with understanding that through Christ we have been given access to righteousness and justification and even eternal life. The promise is ours. We can know that in Christ we have eternal life. That promise is ours. However, as Hebrews 10.36 says, we have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God we will receive what is promised. You have a job to do. And step one of that job is the daily surrendering to Jesus Christ and His will for your life in reflection of the cross. You do that and the Spirit has room to work. And all these other things will find their their way of working out. But step one is you surrender to the person of Jesus Christ and you allow the Spirit complete and utter entrance to use you as an empty glove that He fills. That is step one. Every other step will find its course if you do the first. And you do it daily. Y'all be blessed.